Listening to Maghreb in Past and Present podcast, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode is part of the History of the Maghreb History in the Maghreb series and was recorded on November 18, 2019, at the Centre d'études Maghrebina Tunis Samat. In this episode, Samantha Cloud, PhD candidate of history at St. Louis University, talks about medieval Afrikia and the emergence of the Hafsid dynasty. Hello, my name is Samantha Cloud, and I am speaking to you today from the Centre d'Études Maghrebines à Tunis. Uh, and I am here to talk to you today about medieval Ifriqiya and the emergence of the Hafsid dynasty. Um, so here I'm going to present to you a little bit of a historical narrative of the medieval Maghreb. Persistent impression I had while studying the medieval Maghreb, and more specifically Tunisia, was an inescapable colonial legacy, both in its historical narrative and its historiography. Even basic terms and proper names regarding the Maghreb reflect the enduring preeminence of colonialism. Ifriqiya, Berber, and Barbary are all Roman in origin. Ifriqiya being the name of the Roman province in North Africa, hence the name Africa, and Berber and Barbary deriving from the words barbar or barbarian, a Roman term for foreigners deemed uncivilized, whose language sounded to the Romans as if they were speaking gibberish. No doubt unsurprising to some, these colonial identifiers, as you can see, are also loaded with racist implications. The history of Tunisia is replete with a series of foreign imperial rule, starting with the Phoenicians of Carthage to the Romans, followed by the conquest of the Germanic Vandals, then the Byzantines, whom the Umayyads usurped, later to be replaced by other early Islamic empires. And finally, we skip to the Ottoman period and subsequent French protectorate. Some of these occupied states were sovereign, such as Carthage, which had begun as a Phoenician colony, but eventually became independent until its fall to Rome, while others were ruled from afar via governors, such as under the Umayyads. The historiography of Tunisia as well is haunted still by 19th century French historians who framed their histories of the Maghreb in order to legitimize French imperialism in the region as inevitable and embedded in its past, arguing that the Maghreb had always been a part of the French empire. While the mid-20th century brought a new generation of Maghrebi scholars writing their history in their own right, including Mohamed Talbi, Haiti Roger Idris, and Jamil M. Abu Nasir, Western scholarship and bibliographies still rely heavily on their European predecessors. Moreover, the history of the Maghreb in Western scholarship is woefully sparse, usually understood only as it directly relates to European subjects, usually in terms of conflict. Uh, In Western circles, North Africa is often lumped into Middle Eastern studies, together with the larger Islamic world, with little study or understanding as its own entity, despite the Maghreb having been politically independent from the Middle East throughout the majority of the medieval period. In many ways, the Maghreb is more closely associated to and impacted by their Western Mediterranean neighbors than the powers in distant Baghdad. Linguistic and religious divides do not preclude an intertwined past. By grace of its proximity to the Mediterranean, North Africa shares a cultural heritage and political history with its Latin neighbors that endures today. Thus, considering all of the above, 
a history of the Maghreb in its own respect, as well as a fuller history of the Mediterranean that includes both its Latin and Muslim shores in cohesion, as urged most recently by Alan James Fromhertz and countless other Mediterranean scholars, is long overdue in Western medieval studies. The following presentation is an attempt to provide an overview in English of the medieval Maghreb, in particular the period of the Hafsid dynasty in Ifriqiya, a region that spans modern-day Tunisia and eastern Algeria, as well as parts of western Libya, roughly from Bejeya to Tripoli, with Tunis as its capital. The Maghreb experiences periods of unification as well as partition between separate sovereignties in its history that gives the modern-day countries of Morocco, Algeria, Tunisia, and Libya both a common and a distinct heritage. The history of Ifriqiya and the Hafsid dynasty may thus be categorized as the history of Tunisia. However, it is not strictly bound to current-day national borders, especially considering Bejeya and Constantine, today both cities in Algeria, were arguably two of the most important cities in Hafsid Ifriqiya after Tunis. I will focus today especially on the first two Hafsid kings, Abu Zakaria and Muhammad al-Mustansir, whose reigns together span most of the 13th century. They would establish a steady foundation for their dynasty that would rule Ifriqiya for over three centuries, finally coming to an end in 1574, after which the Ottomans took over. My initial foray into the Hafsid dynasty as a Western medieval scholar was through the Tunis Crusade of 1270, which initiated relations between Hafsid Tunisia and Angevin Sicily. The Angevin dynasty of Sicily was the kingdom established in 1266 by Charles of Anjou, the youngest brother of St. Louis IX of France, after his overthrow of the German Hohenstaufen dynasty in southern Italy at the behest of the papacy. I was curious as to how Angevin-Hafsid relations would unfold after the peace settlement of the 1270 Crusade, which saw Tunis pay a large indemnity to the Crusader army, as well as become a tributary state to Sicily. What were the motivations of the current king, Al-Mustansir, to agree to such terms? And what was the nature of this interreligious relationship between Tunis and Sicily that began with conflict? Many of these questions are well answered in episode 49 of Maghreb in Past and Present by Michael Lauer, entitled Muhammad I al-Mustansir of Tunis and the Northern Mediterranean, as well as in his recently published book, The Tunis Crusade of 1270, uh, both of which are works that I recommend you review if these subjects interest you. Uh, thus, my focus today will be more generally on the early Hafsid rule, rather than a close examination of the relationship between Mohammed al-Mustansir and Charles of Anjou. Uh, that study will be upcoming. Uh, that said, to refer back to my initial questions, what Dr. Lauer and history shows, the novelty of the Hafsid dynasty, in fact, was a huge motive in al-Mustansir's seeming capitulation to the Angevins. His willingness to cooperate and collaborate with Christian powers aligned with his efforts to strengthen his authority within a state that had many internal counterforces that pushed against and threatened his rule. Association between Ifriqiya and Christian powers, particularly in Italy, was long the norm in Western Mediterranean practices, something somewhat unique to Ifriqiya compared to other Maghrebin states by virtue of its closer geographical proximity to the Latin world via Sicily. Uh, this brings us to the main question of today's podcast. By what means was the Hasid dynasty established in the 13th century and its authority stabilized in order to endure through to the 16th century? Uh, what challenges were overcome by Abu Zakaria and Muhammad al-Mustansir 
to consolidate power in a multifarious state and how are each sovereign's approaches to power different. I would like to make a few comments on terms I will be using in this podcast. Uh, Afriki, of course, is the place name I will use uh, to identify the medieval kingdom that is generally today Tunisia and parts of eastern Algeria. Uh, Also, the proper word for Berber uh, is Amazigh. Um, This is the word Berber uh, or Amazigh people call themselves. Uh, For the purposes of this podcast, I will predominantly use the word Berber, however, uh, since that is the term recognizable in the historical field. Um, And by Berber, I mean in the most general sense as that or those native to North Africa. Uh, So with that clarified, the beginning of an independent medieval Ifriqiya can be found in the Aglabid period of the 9th century. The Aglabids were an Arab dynasty established in Karouan by Ibrahim ibn al-Aglab in the year 800 AD. Uh, For reference, this was the same year Charlemagne was crowned Holy Roman Emperor in Rome. Uh, While loyal to the Abbasid Caliphate in Baghdad, as demonstrated by a payment of tribute by the Aglabids to the Caliphate and by the name uh, of the Caliph being included in prayer, the Aglabid dynasty was otherwise autonomous. This was established by Ibrahim, who had accepted his appointment to his position in Ifriqiya by the Abbasid Caliph on the condition that he would be an emir with full autonomy and hereditary power, rather than simply appointed governor or wali. The caliphate honored the autonomy of the Aglabid emirs, interfering only one time in matters of state in the twilight years of the Afrikian dynasty, when it forced a tyrannical emir to abdicate his throne, uh, so to speak, in favor of his son. This unprecedented intrusion was no doubt a sign of Aglabid's decline from power, implying corruption and other issues of secession as contributing factors to their descent. Thus, while still under the umbrella of the Abbasid Caliphate, with a strong cultural and obviously religious bond to the Middle East, politically Ifriqiya breaks from Baghdad in this period and so begins an independent history, a development of North Africa in the medieval period separate and divergent from the East in Baghdad, a political history that is uniquely Maghrebin and ruled from within. The city of Karouan, Uh, which would become the capital of the Aglabid state, was previously established during the initial Arab conquest into North Africa in 670, as was Tunis some years later in 705. The Arab commander, Uqba ben Nafi, had founded Karouan to serve as a military base for said conquest, as well as a center for spreading Islam to the Berber population. The mosque he commissioned is still dedicated to his namesake, the Uqba Mosque, better known as the Great Mosque of Karouan, famously the oldest mosque and holiest Islamic site in North Africa. The Aglabids added their own mark to the city when they established their residence just outside of Karouan to evade the contemptuous Malachite jurists and theologians who disapproved of the emir's supposedly lavish lifestyles and taxation policies, presumably to support said lifestyles. It is said that to compensate for their reputation for indulgence, the Aglabids were active in religious building projects, such as their renovations to the Grand Mosque of Karouan. The Aglabids were also active in hydraulic works, the Aglabid basins of Karouan, of course, being perhaps their greatest infrastructural legacy, the Aglabid basins being two impressively large water reservoirs that serve the city's population. That can still be seen today. The Aglabids' greatest legacy for Western scholarships perhaps lies in its conquest of Sicily from the Byzantine Empire, effectively making Sicily a Muslim island. Uh, Here already we see an early example of the historical bond between Ifriqiya and Sicily, 
which continues into the Hasid period uh, with significant consequences. Despite the two realms in the 13th century being of opposing religions, Islam and Christianity. Uh, this bond, which exists to this day, is historical, geographical, cultural, gastronomical, um, at times political, making both Sicily and Ifriqiya unique to other regions in the Mediterranean. The Fatimids took over Ifriqiya after the fall of the Aghlabids in 909 AD. Originally based in Ifriqiya, first at Rakata, just outside of Karouan, uh, then at Medea, the Fatimids would turn their focus eastward towards Egypt and move their capital to Cairo, leaving governance of Afriqiya in the hands of the Zirid dynasty, the first of several Berber dynasties to rule in the Maghreb, albeit in the name of the Fatimids. The Zirids had been awarded governorship of Afriqiya after their defeat of Abu Yazid, the man on the donkey, an Ibadi Berber insurgent who had led a largely successful popular uprising against the Fatimid Caliphate, even having occupied Karouan for a period of time. Abu Yazid's rebellion was multifaceted, objecting to the foreign Arab rule as well as Fatimid Shiism. As an Ibadit, an early separatist group of the Shiites, Abu Yazid and his followers believed leaders should be chosen by and among the people and best embody the values and practices of a good Muslim. This directly opposed the Fatimid hereditary imamate, which claimed descent from Ali through his wife and daughter of Muhammad, Fatima, hence the name Fatimid. The defeat of Abu Yazid did not quell the bad blood between the Fatimids and their subject province, however. When the Zirid renounced Shia Islam to become Sunni in 1048, uh, consequently recognizing the Abbasid Caliphate in lieu of the Fatimid, the Fatimid Caliphate deployed the Arab tribes of the Banu Hilal and Banu Sulaim, to set fire to the region in what is infamous, infamously known as the Hilalian invasions. Or rather, in less hyperbolic terms, the Fatimid Caliphate facilitated the migration of these tribes through Egypt in order to resettle in the Maghreb. As a result of these invasions or migrations, uh, we see a period of mass cultural Arabization of the Maghreb, as well as a shift towards nomadism in the regions that previously had been more agricultural, Although nomadism, of course, was not foreign to the Maghreb at this time, we just see here an increase in regions previously sedentary. The Zira's inability to protect the denizens of Tunis uh, from the Banu Hilal compelled the city to reject its authority and swear allegiance instead to the Hamadid, an offshoot of the Zira dynasty who had declared independence and ruled much of western Ifriqiya, or modern-day Algeria, from Bejai, its capital. The Hamadid emir appointed a governor to Tunis, Abd al-Haq ibn Abd al-Ziz ibn Khurasan, whom quickly declared independence himself from the Hamadid, thus establishing the Khurasanid dynasty of Tunis, which would last nearly a century until they were absorbed into the Christian Norman kingdom of Sicily. For a period of nearly a century, Frikia would be under the rule of Norman Sicily, administered by the Khurasanid governors until the Almohad conquest of the Maghreb. I would like to highlight the Khurasanid today because with them we see an emergence of Tunis as a central urban hub within Ifriqiya. Uh, Tunis would continue to be a capital under the Hafsids, whom left a significant architectural legacy on the city as we will discuss shortly. The Almohads came from the Atlas Mountains in southern Morocco from the Berber Masmuda tribes. The Almohad movement, so to speak, began as a religious one. The anglicized name Almohad derives from a poor transcription of the Arabic word al-Muwahidun, 
meaning the unifiers, in reference to its puritanical monotheistic doctrine that rigorously averred the unity of God, his indivisible oneness, or Tahid. Ibn Tumart was the founder and spiritual leader who would reveal himself as the true Mahdi, or redeemer of Islam whose arrival was signal the imminent day of judgment. The Almohads would soon mobilize against the reigning Almoradvid Empire uh, in Morocco and Spain, when Tumart, whom Tumart deemed as indulgent and overly lax about Islamic morals and conduct. Abd al-Mumin would lead the Almohad army, the sword to Tumart's word, assuming leadership of the movement after Tumart's early death and eventually becoming the first Almohad caliph. Together, Tumart and Abd al-Mumin made up the two dimensions of a new caliphate, Tumart as its imam and al-Mumin as its caliph. The Almohads would conquer the whole of the Maghreb and remaining Muslim states of Spain before the end of the 12th century. The unity of the Almohad Empire would only last a handful of decades, however. Its provinces would later become their own states, one by one rebelling against the caliph in the early decades of the 13th century. The Hafsids were early followers of the Almohads. Abu Hafs Umar, from whom the lion is named, was one of Ibn Tumart's closest companions, one of the inner council of ten, the original converts and witnesses of Tumart as Mahdi. Abu Hafs' position among the Almohads was third in rank behind al-Mumin. Tumart bestowed unto him the title of Sheikh of the Masmuda, affirming his position within the new caliphate as well as that of his descendants. Even his name, Abu Hafsumar, was given to him by Ibn Tumart. His true Amazigh name was Fasqa Umatsul Inti. Abu Hafs' descendants would always hold high governmental positions within the Almohad Empire, including governor of Ifriqiya by 1207, when Caliph An Nasir appointed Abd al Wahid bin Abi Hafs to govern the distant province after his successful defeat of the rebel Ibn Ghaniya. The governorship would come down to Abu Zakaria in 1228, when his brother, who had held the position, refused to announce a sermon of fidelity to the Almohad Caliph. However, by 1229, Zakaria would initiate the first step in a process to divorce his state from the Almohad Caliphs, when he assumed the title of Emir and removed the name of the Almohad Caliph from the Kotba Friday prayer. Zakaria's rejection of the Almohad Caliph, however, should be understood as a profession of his fidelity to the Almohad doctrine of Ibn Tumart, its Mahdi or prophet. Zakaria saw himself as the faithful inheritor of the Almohad doctrine, its true emir, after the example of its original emir, Abd al-Mumin. Zakaria revoked his allegiance to the Caliph after having learned of numerous offenses the Caliph had committed against true Almohad doctrine including criticizing the Mahdi's claim of infallibility um, and removal of his name from prayer, the execution of many high-ranking Amahad officers, especially those from Zakaria's own tribe, the Hintata, as well as the permission for the call to prayer uh, in, within the Amahad Caliphate to be announced in the Berber language. Uh, thus, Zakaria removed the name of the Amahad Caliph uh, from prayer in Ifriqiya, saying prayer instead in the name of the Mahdi and Orthodox Caliphs, publicly confirming his enduring allegiance to Almohad doctrine, despite his rejection of its state's keepers. Around 1236, he started to mint coins under the title of Al-Amir, and added his own name to the prayer the following year. Never did he take any title but Amir. Ifriqiya was an independent state, and the Berber Hasid dynasty its heads of state. 
The half-states mark the beginning of a series of sovereign Berber states that emerge in the Maghreb after the dissolution of the Almohad Empire. Others to shortly follow would be the Beni Abdelwad of Tlemcen in central Maghreb, today roughly Algeria, and the Marinids of Fez in the western Maghreb, today roughly Morocco. Now a bit of a tangential aside on the categorization of Berber or Berber state uh, and the distinction between Berber versus Arab. Um, this is a tricky distinction to make. Uh, the Hafsids were the first fully independent Berber dynasty in Ifriqiya. Their tribe, the Hintata, originated from the Atlas Mountains in southern Morocco as part of the Masmuda tribal confederacy, from which the Almohads also derive. That said, by no means were the Hafsids a champion of Amazigh heritage or would primarily identify as such. Rather than claim a Berber identity, the early Hafsid kings emphasized predominantly an Islamic identity, and more specifically that of the Almohad doctrine, as the rightful inheritors of that doctrine. Generations as chief officers of the Almohad Empire, moreover, had removed the Hintata and the Hafsids from their pastoral roots uh, to the more cosmopolitan and urban landscape of the imperial courts. Several instances show the Hafsids acting against Berber interests, in fact such as when Zakaria slaughtered the Huara Berber tribe for their refusal to pay taxes and for their brigandry. This is not to take away from Berber contribution to the history of North Africa, but rather to highlight the complexity of Berber identity. Even among those of common Berber descent, distinctions of nomadic versus sedentary lifestyles, language, etc., create diverse connotations of the identifier of Berber. Regardless, the half-seeds were Berber in fact originated from and of North Africa and had come to settle in Ifriqiya, where they would now rule without any foreign oversight the land and the people from which they bloomed. Uh, this was a unique experience for a country and people that for centuries had only known foreign domination of some type. Another challenge is the reconciliation of Arab and Berber within North Africa. Uh, for one, many people possess both heritage due to intermixing of Berber and Bedouin peoples dating back to the original Arabic conquest. Uh, certainly at times, Arabs may be seen as the other uh, during periods of rapid violence against the native peoples of the Maghreb by incoming Arabic tribes. Uh, the most renowned instance, of course, is the Banu Halal. While these events see uh, foreign Arab tribes massacre the Amazigh, uh, it is important to remember that the motivation for this attack um, had nothing to do with the native inhabitants' Berber heritage. Uh, but rather their rebellious adherence to Sunniism, which the Shiite Fatimid Caliphate would not tolerate. The Banu Hulal were, in a sense, merely pawns of the Fatimid state, being offered access to conquer new lands and riches. Their motives for slaughter, thus, were not ethnically based. A better way to distinguish Ifriqian society, rather than by ethnicity, would be by sedentary versus nomadic lifestyles. Here is where conflict really arose, rather than by ethnic animosities. While the nomadic Arab tribes who remained after the Halalian invasions would come into conflict with Berber village, this was far more due to the realities of nomadic and sedentary peoples living together. Uh, in matters of state as well, the issues of conflict between the Hafsid court and Arabic tribes were that of tribal sovereignty and taxations, issues that are consequent to state rule over nomadic peoples, uh, not due to ethnicity. Uh, the Hafsids had similar issues with the obedience of nomadic Berber tribes as well. Uh, partly the reason for my caution uh, not to overemphasize the otherness of Arabs in Berber society 
is again to combat colonial historiographical legacy, uh, in this instance, the French colonial legacy, uh, in Tunisia and the Greater Maghreb, uh, which taught in classrooms and in textbooks the history of Arabization in North Africa as one as purely violence and purposely created the Arab as the other to native Berbers to embed anti-Arab and Islamophobic sentiments among Maghrebian people, and so to see the French as liberators. While ethnic violence did occur, the intermingling of Arab and Berber elements together form the Maghrebian identity and history and should not be framed only in terms of antithesis. After consolidating Bijaya and Constantine into the kingdom, Zakaria would later expand further west, subduing the Abdelwadid Emir of Tlemcen. During his march to the central Maghreb, Zakaria had allied with neighboring tribes hostile to the Emir, compelling the Abdelwadid Emir to quickly capitulate. He would keep his functions and titles, but definitively break all ties from the Almohad Empire and become a vassal of the Hafsid uh, state instead. Prayer would be made in the name of Zakaria, and in exchange, the Abdelwadids would receive some profits from taxes collected in Ifriqiya. To ensure the Emir of Tlemcen's loyalty, Zakaria invested territory to the chiefs of tribes that had joined him in his campaign, thus surrounding the city with tribal neighbors loyal to the Hafsids as a buffer to prevent the Emir from considering retaliation. Here we see how Zakaria played tribal and urban elements against each other to create a balance and stability within his new kingdom, demonstrating a king and understanding of Maghrebin political and social organization. The Muslim cities of Spain under siege by the Christian armies of the Reconquista, hearing of Zakaria's growing influence, would appeal to the Hasi king for aid, which Zakaria would provide it on several occasions by means of ships and supplies to no avail, unfortunately. Seville, Cheriz, and Tarifa would all declare obedience to the Hasids and request a governor to be sent from Tunis to lead them. The Nasrids of Granada were also nominally subject to the Hasid kingdom and received subsidies and supplies from Ifriqiya for their war against the Spanish Christians. When the Marinids of Western Maghreb took over uh, Fez from the Almohads in 1248, they too declared fealty to Zakaria. While much of his reign was spent away from Tunis, subduing and consolidating his kingdom, Zakaria also invested time and resources in the amelioration of the city's infrastructure, making it a worthy capital, a center of culture and commerce as well as power. He built up the Kasbah Palace to house his family and administrators, commissioning the construction of the Kasbah Mosque in an Andalusian style. Uh, Zakaria had previously served as a officer in Seville when he was still part of the Almohad Empire, before he had been appointed governor of Tunis. Zakaria also established the first madrasa in the Maghreb, primarily to teach Almohad doctrine as well as train clerks for his administration. Tunis would become the learning capital of Ifriqiya and especially of Almohad teaching, shifting focus away from Caruan and the interior of the country um, to now Tunis and the coast. As the second son, Abd Abdallah Muhammad al-Mustansir was not initially intended to inherit the throne from his father, Abu Zakaria. His eldest brother, Abu Yahya Zakaria, had been designated heir before his death in 1248. Zakaria Sr. is said to have fallen into a deep depression with the death of his son, himself dying shortly after in 1249, but not before securing the nomination of his other son, Muhammad, as heir from the assembly of the grand officers of the state. 
Many subject states revoked their submission to the Hafsids after Zakaria's death. Although the Abdawadid of central Maghreb remained loyal until the siege of Tlemcen by the Marinids. Muhammad al-Mustansir's reign began with conspiracy, with a plot against his life and to usurp the throne carried out by his uncle and cousin, both of whom were caught and promptly executed, somewhat publicly as well. Intrigue within the court would be common among al-Mustansir's relatives, including his own brother who would be exiled to Spain, as well as among high-ranking Almohad officials who resented the Hafsid's claim to power. Al-Mustansir would counter these rival forces by diversifying the balance of power among them. To temper the influence of relatives and high-ranking Almohads, Al-Mustansir looked outside the realm for support, in particular among Christian powers, whose Italian maritime states brought in much commercial activity to Tunis and new revenue. It was also under Al-Mustansir that we begin to see in the Maghreb the practice of hiring Christian mercenaries to the king's army. Mercenaries, unlike native inhabitants, would not have any previous allegiance to other Maghrebi chiefs, loyal only to him that paid them. Al-Mustansir also filled his court with educated Andalusian refugees from Spain, uh, much to the dismay of the established Almohad officials. Uh, Andalusian poets and musicians also entertained the court, which had become quite the departure from the modesty, severity, and simplicity of his father Zakaria's court. While Zakaria spent his reign consolidating the kingdom, Al-Mustansir spent his reign adorning it with lush parks and lively cult culture. He cultivated an enormous garden just outside the city, Abu Fir, full of orchards, animals, and waterways. Stories tell of local women racing down the aqueducts which fed the park in baskets, laughing and enjoying the day. Today, remnants of Abu Fihir can be found in the City of Sciences near Ariana in Tunis. Uh, Muhammad also built a hunting estate near Bizert, uh, where he took excursions for both for pleasure and business, the hunting grounds being an excellent place to host delegates and other important guests of state. Most famously, however, Al-Mustansir renovated and expanded upon the Roman aqueducts, which ran from the mountains in Zaguan to the ruins of Carthage, to feed his celebrated pleasure gardens. Muhammad had adopted, in short, a politic of prestige, which did not stop at the lavish parks and festive entertainment. He would boldly assume the caliphal title Amir al-Mumunin, meaning Prince of the Believers, as well as the imamian title Al-Mansur bi-Fadl Allah, or Al-Mustansir bi-Allah, the victorious by grace of God. With these titles, he signed treaties, minted coins, and was immortalized in funerary epitaphs. His caliphate was shortly legitimized after the fall of the Abbasid Caliph in 1258 to the Mongol Hulagu. His claim to Prince of the Believers coincided as well with the weakening of the Ayyubids in Egypt and, of course, the Almohads, making Muhammad arguably the most powerful sovereign in the Islamic world for a period of time. Thus, for a brief period, Ifriqiya in the Maghreb was the epicenter of Islam. Al-Mustansir's reign was followed by a period of great instability for the Hafsid dynasty that lasted the better part of a century. The foundation laid by him and his father, however, would allow the Hafsids to endure into the 16th century despite such challenges. Muhammad would die after a reign of nearly 30 years in 1277. He would be remembered fondly, especially in the history of Ibn Khaldun, who dedicates an entire chapter of his Trois de Beber to his memory. Here is where our review ends for today with the emergence of Tunis as the capital of Ifriqiya, made so largely by the Hafsid dynasty and thus part of a great Berber legacy. 
a place that was once the center of the Islamic world, making North Africa no longer a periphery of large estates, but instead the very core of its own caliphate and a force all its own. Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website, www.themagribpodcast.com, as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts, like our Facebook page, Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts, subscribe to the Semat newsletter at www.sematmagreb.org, or visit the webpage of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies. See you soon for a new episode.